My name's Troy Duffy. I wrote and directed The Boondock Saints, and I'm going to take you guys through this now. This church right here is the Union Methodist Church in Newbury Street in Boston. We, uh, we're lucky to find a church, actually, because all of the ones except this one uh, refused to let us shoot inside because of the violent nature of the script and uh, the religious overtones therein. But deliver us from evil. I'm actually very proud to have received a letter from the Archdiocese of Toronto, two-page, single-spaced, uh, calling me the spawn of Satan and uh, the script uh, an instrument of his destruction. <laughs> I had it framed and stuck on the uh, production office wall the whole time we were shooting. I was quite proud of it. Somehow it got lost in the shuffle. That is my little cousin right there, Taylor. A picture of innocence in a child's face is sometimes worth more than a thousand words. Here's our two boys, Norm and Sean. Since we've shot this, we've all become very close and good friends. And I needed two guys, I thought, that looked very similar to each other, that could be brothers. And I think my intention for this whole sequence was to have a scene with no dialogue from the main characters where you knew that they were brothers by the time they exited the church and actually said their first words. So, gee, I hope I got that right. Long time ago, almost 30 years ago, this poor soul cried out for help time and time again. Uh, the crucifix that they're kissing the feet of, that's a build, actually, this really skilled guy chipped it out of foam and then painted it right and it looks like this big wooden cross. I knew I needed a very imposing religious biblical figure thing back there so we decided to uh, to spend the money and build that. Money all, all by the way is always a huge concern independent filmmaking. We had about five or six million dollars to make this film in terms of you know movie money that's pretty much you're on your own money is what that is. Uh, you never realize how little six million bucks will buy until you have to spend it on a flick. And that is the indifference of good men. And here is our preacher delivering the credo of the film. The indifference of good men is sort of a theme here, and how these two are not indifferent. They act out on their own. Yeah, that was a very planned shot, this one right here two saints on their necks. It was cool. We had this guy do it with these stamps. He, like, he, all their tattoos were made out of stamps, so everybody's walking around the set with saints' tattoos and tattoos on our fingers and all the tattoos that the brothers had. Everybody just click them on there. That's the Charles Street Bridge in Boston. It was the first time in a helicopter there. I was sitting down with a, with a monitor in my lap. Got Norm and Sean walking on the bridge there. There I am. <laughs> yeah, the boys worked at a slaughterhouse. I guess the reason I did that is because I was a butcher for a couple years during, uh, during high school, and I got taken through a slaughterhouse because this guy wanted to hire me. It was the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen in my life. I thought it was a good place for them because I wanted them to be from poverty, from poor means and background, you know.
There's the Prudential Building in Boston. You're going to be training her today. Hey. Basically, the rule of thumb here is if you... Wait, rule of thumb? In the early 1900s, it was legal for men to beat their wives. Dot Marie, this large woman right here, like the tattoo on her neck. People sometimes ask me what did it say, and uh, her tattoo says "Untouched by Man" because she's a you know bull, militant lesbian. I knew you two pricks would give me problems. Come on, it's St. Patty's Day. It's all in good fun. Now fuck you, and, and fuck you too. And my mother is actually behind Sean in that scene when he goes down. She came to set, threw a bloody jacket on her, got mom in there. And I had the boys living in a, you know, a legal loft here, one of these places that looks like it's upstairs of a warehouse or something like that. Uh, my brother and I lived in a very similar place, real rat hole. There's my guy, Adam Kane, the director of photography. I think he's one of the few geniuses in the business. And he sets stuff up. I mean, it's like, you know, when these guys, because it's all art that you work with, these are all artists, you know? But they have to understand finance and you don't have time, you know? We had to shoot this thing in 32 days. And uh, there's just not time for these artsy light setups all the time yet. Look, you know, look how colorful it is. Look what a great job he did. There's The Rock. That man right there is David Delarocco, dear friend of mine. Used to work at the bar with me and my brother. And uh, while I was writing the script, I just liked his personality so much. I wrote him in. He came to L.A. to be an actor, I guess, about 15 years ago and gave it up. But uh, I convinced him to come back. <laughs> Including this one. Fuck! Ass! There's Doc. That's uh, Tourette syndrome he's got. That was me, by the way. The guy in the overalls there in the previous shot. Listen, fellas, I don't want anyone to know, so you keep your... There I am again. <laughs> Quite fetching. Yeah, put me and my brother in this shot and a bunch of my friends. A guy at the end of the bar with the do-rag on is a buddy of mine named Darren Yacovetta. Took his name for the uh, crime boss, the ultimate evil guy there. Not that Darren's a bad guy, one of my best friends. And don't cross the road if you can't get out of the kitchen. <laughs> and I like this three-shot stuff that we're doing right here with these guys, you know? You know, a lot of times at bars late at night, the ones that I've worked in anyway, you know, it becomes more of a jovial atmosphere. Here's the big boy, Scotty Griffith, buddy of mine for a long time, six foot seven, 350 pounds of Scott Griffith. He is an American, but he does this Russian accent, and uh, he's always been just a guy that, you know, could get the accents down. Big, imposing looking guy, but gentle as hell. Why don't you make like a tree? And get the fuck out of here! Yeah, when I was writing it, I wrote Doc's character as a guy that gets all those proverbs mixed up. Just thought it'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, it's St. Patty's Day. 
Everyone's Irish tonight. Mm. Why don't you just pull up a stool and have a drink with us? This is no game. If you won't go, we will make you go. And there is a shameless plug for me. This guy right here, Bob Marley, friend of mine, Tommy Shabbat, took me to see him uh, perform at the Laugh Factory. He's a stand-up comic. Been on the Leno Show a bunch and all these other things. Makes a living at it, good living. Cracked me up so much, and I knew I needed a, a guy to oppose Willem here, because Greenlee, his character, is kind of the dingbat of the, of the script, and Willem's a guy that's got it all figured out. So I needed somebody for Willem to, to punk out during the film. So we're going to see exactly how he does that. I had all this rock music playing. Man, I remember I had, uh, I had When the Levee Breaks by Zeppelin playing there before. I thought it was kind of cool, but yeah, I think they wanted like $17 million for me to use 30 seconds of that song. So needless to say, that was out of there. Okay, all right, all right. Say these two guys are here, they don't even know the fucking huge guy. They're just staggering home from a bar, still all fucked up from St. Paddy's last night. I really like this guy who was uh, doing our study cam this day, you know? I told him to kind of wander through this scene. It's going to become more prevalent a little bit later. But when you give an artist, I think, sometimes, uh, you know, some, some latitude and, and just kind of take it into consideration that they've done this a lot, whereas you haven't, you know, and I'm sure that there's always, th I always ask these guys, you know, what are the things that you want to do? What have you always wanted to try that maybe a director hasn't really let you, you know, so he was talking to me about it, and he said, geez, Troy, I'd always, I'd always like to, you know, wander through a scene like this and, and catch all the action, almost like some ghost is walking through, and that's going to come up a little bit later, but this is where he begins to experiment with a great steady cam guy. I'm surprised to see a lot of these turning up. Brilliant. So now we got a huge guy theory and a serial crusher theory. Top notch. What's your name? Detective Greenlee. Who the fuck are you? That's who the fuck I am. Yeah, I wanted to dub Willem's character to be instantly at odds with the Boston Police Department. You know, coming in saying I'm smarter than everybody, I'm better looking, I'm better dressed, hold my coat, go get me a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, let daddy do his work. Why don't you get me a cup of coffee? Who the hell is it? Cafe latte. What the fuck? Twist of lemon. Chief, what the fuck is this? Sweet and low. And there's punk out number one. We really had fun with this. And Willem is that kind of a guy. I remember when uh, he and I first met to talk about this. I believe I'm the first, uh, first time director he's ever worked with. At least that's what I was told. And I remember when we met, uh, he had just... I just witnessed him on stage blow these 200 people out of his theater at the Worcester Group in Soho, New York, and uh, we sat down and talked about it, and it became pretty quick. It became like uh, two kids in a sandbox, you know, building a castle. He was like, oh, oh, I could do this, 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 and this. And I said, yeah, yeah, that way we can pick it up and do this, and I can add this. And it just, you know, it became like two children. And uh, end of the dinner, he said, yeah, I'm doing it. And I said, great. And we hugged, and I got on a plane, went back to L.A., and uh, we had our guy, and he's such a wonderful actor that I was on cloud nine.
Now here's the here's my steady cam guy starting to sweep through this and starting to pick up little things. It's kind of got a floaty little feel to it. And I wanted, uh, you know, when Willem plays the opera music in his ears like that, it's sort of an attempt by me to bring in the audience into his world, to suck everybody into his stuff rather than just watching a guy go through a crime scene. And when he was conducting, yeah, we had shot this shot from the front. This ended up being one of my favorite shots of the whole movie, him from behind there. And I just felt that... Uh, it looked much better from behind and more graceful. And he finds the bullet hole right there and puts it all together in that instant. And this was his idea here to start to fall out of his world and back into reality. Mitchell, Langley. Yes, sir. Find the manager of this building. See if he's had any complaints of water coming down in any of the apartments starting just this morning. Langley, you take that building. Same thing. Change fee! Mm, again with the study camera at work right here. Just floating through, picking up. Another guy comes into the, to the scene like that. And you're going to see more work like that, you know? Give these people some freedom and you get some very unique things. Find me some metal parts. Give me a... Drain cover. That's kind of significant right there, a little foreshadowing moment. Find it right here. It's a 50 cal. Chief, could you get ballistics down here and tell them they have to dig a 50 caliber slug out of a brick wall and locate another that's been fired through a dumpster? He's the best ballistics guy in the world. Have here in 10 minutes. How do you know that? Liquid paraffin. Came up positive. And bullet holes are... This camera work right here. That kind of thing, you know, allowing a guy's head to block out the the, the lead and then catching the catching it at the end there, and then picking up this guy in the background. Oh yeah, there it is. And we had problems that day with the light. You know, might notice the light difference between this and that cop checking under the body for the see all the sun up in the corner there in the background. We had to put all these big blankets over the tops of these buildings to try and get the sun out of there, make everything look neat but you know when you're doing independent film it's like you gotta you gotta get it you got no time you got no money you just gotta move 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 and uh this was one of those days then we're heading to the fifth now our three stooges police officers here greenlee's obviously the moron of the bunch uh then there is the one right next to willem to his left as you're looking at is a guy named brian mahoney his wonderful wife gave, you know, uh, us a call and was badgering me to audition him. I auditioned him in my living room and immediately hired him. Great actor. And then we have Mr. Ferry. He's kind of the gross one. He's, you're going to see him picking his nose and doing all this other stuff. Great actor, too. He's a find, you know, when you go through the audition process in Toronto. Uh, so it's a big task, you know, maybe a hundred people a day. You're looking for that one standout guy, and he seemed to complete the Three Stooges thing. Center touch alone. Wait till you feel me move. Oh. It was so quick, you couldn't even feel me go, could you? Let's try it again, try it again. Look at the ceiling. In comes Doc. 
yeah, the Irish Catholicism of these characters in this whole part of town, uh, South Boston, is really a very conservative, close-knit Irish Catholic community. And, you know, there's a lot of off-the-boat Irish there, too. You know, you go into some of the bars, and some of the people got Boston accents, and then, bang, you're talking to some, uh, you know, frosted lucky charms. So I wanted to have the brothers be like that, you know, and they're keeping with the title, Boondock Saints. They're people that are from the boondocks. We don't know where they're from. We don't know much about them. And what they do, you know, becomes very controversial as the movie rolls on. But all this, you know, up to now is a setup. I'm going to show you when I wanted the movie to kick in and, and just jump into high gear and have a frantic pace so that you couldn't, uh, you know, go take a piss without uh, missing something very significant. I'd like to thank whichever one of you donut-munching, barrel-assed, pod-pulling sissies leaked this to the press. This was Willem's last day of shooting, actually. It's kind of sad for everybody to see him leave. ...making these boys out to be superheroes, triumphing over evil. Let me squash the rumors now. These two are not heroes. And, of course, the people of Boston are going to figure out that that's exactly what they are, to them, anyway. And they get pretty personal about these brothers. Yes, nothing from our far-reaching computer system has turned up diddly on these two. All we know is what we found out from the neighbors. And the general consensus is... <laughs> Again, with the from-behind thing. Willem just did that in rehearsal, put out his arms and twiddled his fingers. And I thought that that was very similar to what he had done in the alley. So we decided to shoot that little bit from behind. ...by some huge friggin' guy. <laughs> Are we considering these guys armed and dangerous? Well, not armed. If they had guns, they would have used them. But dangerous? Very. Now, what makes you think they're dangerous? I mean, maybe they're just protecting each other. So immediately the cops start sticking up for these brothers. And here comes our boys. Hey, look. I'm not saying one way or the other. Just be careful and go by the protocol on this. It's Grunt Police Works going to bring this one in. This was in a big warehouse in Toronto. Hot as hell. And I believe that uh, there was a lot of mothers and fathers on set that day. All these actors, you know. You start becoming very close, and they want their parents up there. I think we got uh, two mothers and one father in this scene of the uh, some of the lead actors here. You'd probably have better luck with a beard. Hey, you would. Hey, Greenlee. Onion bagel, cream cheese. Yeah, and this joke that Willem says is my editor's idea. So we just had him uh, do the uh, voiceover, and it worked out. Now, this right here is the only clean-cut scene in the movie where the three main guys... Uh, sit down across the table from each other. Of course, Willem has a hard time figuring out that what happens after this, that these two boys are responsible. And I wanted to show their intellect in this scene by having uh, a conversation here. And this, this part's in Latin. Uh, having an open conversation with subtitles uh, that the person in the room can't understand if they don't know Latin. You know, I thought that it expanded their characters a little bit. And this is one of those scenes all the actors wait for. You know, Willem wanted to sort of be with the heroes of the film. He was looking forward to the scene. These uh, two young actors, Sean and Norm, wanted to have a scene with Willem because he's so great. And so everybody's kind of, you know, they're looking forward. There's particular moments that everybody looks forward to. 
Listen, if you want to fight, you can see you're outnumbered here. And now we have this flashback and continue the story of uh, what happened. Make the offers. Hey, Boris. What would you do if I told you? <laughs> this is what I like about Rocco. He's just, just a natural, you know? <laughs> kind of, maybe even a little bit over the top sometimes, but I just can't help but like it. And bang, they know, uh, they know Russian too. You know, there's a lot of little things I put in there like that to, to show how different they were. And then there we go on a big bar brawl. And I wanted that frantic type thing, you know? There's so many punches being thrown when you actually get in a fight in a bar that nobody really even connects that good, and it's always like, you know, been in bar fights where I, like, broke my pinky. You know, it's like, what? How the hell did that happen? And the light his ass on fire scene. <laughs> slowly coming up on the point where the film just jumps into overdrive. And this is the initiation of it. I remember writing this scene, I had trouble, and I was talking to my brother about it, and I'm like, if you're chained to a toilet and they were gonna kill me down an alley, you know, how could you get out of it? And I was thinking of a million different ways, break your wrist, get out of the cuff, you know, do something, and he said, yeah, just pull the fucking toilet right out of the ground. So I was like, hey, that's cool, because later on it becomes more significant here. This little look that's right here, one, two. Very, very um, poignant moment for me. I told the, the actors that that's their kill switch. No matter what, no matter how scared they are, no matter how terrified, they're gonna get out of it no matter what. They will do anything to save each other. And that was what I wanted them to convey. Love that shot. And then boom, love this shot too. This overhead stuff's working for me. I remember we did this whole stunt that's coming up and uh, shot all this stuff in, in slow motion. And uh, the dailies went back to the company. They're like, what, has Duffy lost his mind? What's going on? It's all in slow motion. I edited, I did a quickie edit with my editor who I had up there with me. I almost got fired for this because they thought, you know, there's no way we can edit this together. So I used a techno song like this and edited it together pretty much as you're seeing it. And then they, uh, they said, okay, all's well. But it's just one of those things. It's like not only you got to do a film, answer everybody's questions, keep actors, you know, motivated, do all this stuff. You have to, you know, watch, watch out for your job, you know. It's an independent film. You know, the first day you get there, you're like, I got like five or six million dollars to spend? Yeah, you know. Let's go to a nice restaurant. <laughs> and you figure out you're pretty much screwed. So now the film starts taking off with this stunt. This is like right where I wanted to speed it up. Adam Kane, the uh, cinematographer, did a great job here. Used the shutter speed trick to give this a little bit more of a frantic nature. Shot it from a couple different angles and we just had fun doing all this. 
remember I told Norm too. I said you gotta you gotta pick your brother up. Don't help him. I, this has to look legit. So he you know he took about a 180 pound guy, threw him up on his shoulders, grabbed the bag, and ran off with him. And everybody started clapping at the end. I think he only did, he just did that in one take. The, the pick up and exit the alley part. And, you know, he did all the robbing and stuff. We had to get that from a couple different angles, but he nailed that. French? So here they start using different languages uh, to have a sort of subversive conversation right in front of the man. And you can sort of tell that they like each other. And that was like one of the, the that Smecker and these, these, these McManus brothers really like each other. And that was one of the things I wanted to convey, you know, that uh, these boys may not, you know, what they do, you may agree with it, you may disagree with it, it may sicken you, uh, it may not, but they're the kind of guys, you know, that you want on your side. They're, they're good friends, good people, that, uh, you know, the kind of guys you want to hang out with, drink with, have a good time with, you know, be friends with. It was very important to me that they had that sort of lovable quality to them and that this guy picks up on well, we'll have to check with your mom. But it's okay with me if your friends sleep over. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, I think that's one every kid heard in his childhood. Okay, people, okay. This is our official statement. The chief, I don't know if anybody recognizes uh, the chief, but he was the bartender in uh, Goodwill Hunting. I found that out after I hired him. He's from Boston, so his accent's really natural, and uh, I wanted them all kind of dudded up and looking official. Because every time the Boston cops get on the TV, they, you know, they look like they're just about to go and head up a parade or something. Hey, Rocco, Yeah! Yeah, here comes Rocco bringing them their clothes and stuff like that, just a carefree guy. And we can tell that they're very good friends. This poor soul cried out for help. And this is sort of a symbolic of a baptism here because uh, there was a bunch of stuff I couldn't shoot that uh, dream sequences. I just did it this way. That's Billy's voiceover. Where we added that a lot, uh, you know, during editing, you figure out, you know, you, know, it, the, you, you, you write one film, you shoot a second, and you edit a third. That old adage is completely true. Billy actually did that voiceover while he was on a, he was doing comedy in, um, in Australia. You know, I sent him the lines and stuff and got with him on the phone and got him sounding, you know, ominous enough, and he, he, he really knocked it out for me. Right there, see that look and that one? That's where they turn, that's where they realize something's different now. And uh, that silent moment right there, you know, after the, their symbolic baptism and, you know, they look into each other's eyes and something's different all of a sudden. Norm's just got that, he just got that quality you always, uh, every time I saw that kid on screen beforehand, because you get sent all these things that they've done, and I watch Norm, he just got that quality where you're just thinking, you know, what is this guy thinking? He's got that James Dean thing, you know, like, it just, he could be sitting there saying nothing, and the camera just loves the kid. 
Whereas Sean is a more schooled actor. I told him once that, you know, if his mother died and they told him, he'd come out, hit his mark, and then go into his trailer and start crying. Just professional. You can't shake that kid. In my opinion, I think he's one of the brightest, most brilliant young actors that's out there in Hollywood right now. Really wish he'd do more things like this, you know, show his range and his what he can accomplish. There was people after that watched the movie and said, you know, the kid's accent's flawless, and I was buying him as a badass and all that stuff, and I was like, you know, he's just such a gifted, gifted kid. That's the funny man. Give it here, package boy. Joey Bevo said it was important. I said I had to give it to him myself. <laughs> a lot of people ask me why I use Ron Jeremy in this scene. And uh, it was a very specific little thing I did. He, uh, you know, he needed a real scumbag in the scene, you know, and a guy that was kind of uh, too little over-thrilled about Elvis. That's why I got him looking like that. And uh, I chose Ron. Ron was very excited to do the film. You know, he's always, he's in a lot of people's films and music videos. But I knew that, like, people sitting down and watching this, you know, if you're in a, with your girlfriend watching it at home or something like that, Chances are you both know who he is, but are you going to talk about it afterwards, you know? That's one of those things that's, uh, you know, it's a little, maybe maybe even it's a little out of the movie a little bit, but I, you know, I don't care. I liked it. This guy right here, <laughs> Carlo Rota. Listen to that Italian accent. He busts into Italian throughout the script. He's just a tough Italian guy. I found him up in Toronto, one of those circumstances, you know, just God's looking out for you. Says, here you go, pal. This guy was perfect, imposing, evil, great Italian accent. And he's actually British, too, which is weird, because he'd come to say, he's like, hello, Duffy, I'd like a spot of tea. And suddenly he'd bust into his Italian. It was great. One of those guys I wish would move to L.A. and start uh, start being in some movies around here. I think he's very, very talented. What do I call you? The funny man. The funny man. I'm having a shitty day. I'm depressed. I like the way they decorated his office, too. All this Italian stuff hanging around. It just looked, uh, looked legit to me, like it's some back office someplace. I ain't really supposed to be there, but, you know... I need my bottle of Chianti and the, you know, stupid Italian statue and some grapes <laughs> just to make it look legit. Uh, uh, a white guy and a black guy. Yeah, I've been asked a lot of questions about this joke, too, that I uh, have Rocco tell. And the reason that I put it in there, obviously, uh, was to create some kind of tension and show some more about Rocco's character. But that's the way the guy tells a joke. He'll tell a joke, you know, and he'll, he'll have you going for like five minutes and then forget the punchline. It's completely annoying. So I want, what I want here is for you to start feeling sorry for him and like, oh God, I mean, he's really, he's really losing it up there. It's almost like he's, like he's performing, really getting, he's just about to get the, the gong. Yet when he says the punchline, bang, it's, you know, it's hilarious. My nigger brothers in America to be back in Africa and, and happy and everything, you know. So Gene goes, poof, and um, all the niggers in America are in Africa. And uh, 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 this is going. I'm, I'm not funny today. I'm not, I know. I'm having a hard day. I, 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 this joke sucks. It's, 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 a, it's a stupid joke. Yeah, he peters out right there. Says I give up. Continue the joke. It's 
So the genie says to the white guy, uh, um, what's your one wish? And the white guy goes, you mean to tell me all the niggas and specks are out of America? Genie goes, yeah. He says, well, um, I'll have a Coke then. Yeah, you know, and I, I think, you know, people ask me about using racial humor like that. I figure, hey, you know, if it's funny, f screw you. You know, I mean, if you can't take a joke, just pull it out of your VCR or whatever, you know? I mean, it's just not that uh, there's enough crap in the world to worry about about a few racial epithets being thrown around. Yeah, everybody's out, and so it's just lots of cults, because that's all he needs. <laughs> Tell me one more. What? <laughs> mm. That right there was the first shot of the film. We, uh, actually, this is our very, very first day. We called it Day Zero, as a matter of fact. And, uh, they're trading in all the stuff that they got off the Russians to a gun dealer. Irish gun dealer. Knock yourselves out. Music here. Yeah, I used to have, uh, a Beatles song playing there. Um, this music going, I can't remember it. But, uh, oh, it was Oh Darling, I remember. And, uh, of course, that was another $17 million for that one, so we weren't gonna, weren't about to get that. We had to just put in this cheesy soundtrack from someplace. Get the same vibe on it, like they're just going on a little, a little shopping spree here, you know, grabbing everything and having a good time. Of course, they go for the biggest guns, which is exactly what I did when the gun guy showed me his room full of guns. They had a big uh, machine, like an anti-aircraft machine gun, and it was so cool. And uh, I ended up putting it in this scene, doing a gag with it, just because, you know, the gun was great. I'm serious. Me too, that's stupid. Then one thing you're gonna need a rope for it. I don't fucking know what you're gonna need it for. They just always need it. This rope stuff becomes, uh, very significant later on. There it is, there's my baby. I think that thing works too. Is that right, Rambo? There's also a lot, a lot of, you know, cracking jokes about, uh, you know, popular culture here with movies. He calls him Rambo. There's a, there's a, you know, inference to Charlie Bronson, and later on, there's like, you know, all this stupid crap happens on TV. It doesn't happen in real life. Those are very uh, planned out little things, you know. I wanted to sort of make a movie that was, you know, just entertaining. I'm, I'm sick of not getting my eight bucks worth every time I go to a, to a flick, you know. So I just wanted something you could sit down, watch, laugh, have a good time, a little bit of drama, some, some cool gunplay, and Yes, have it be artistic, have all that other stuff in there, and all the symbolism, all the religion, and have a cohesive story and some unique dialogue, but pretty much I wanted to make a movie that where people just were entertained for the two hours, you know? I got this shot behind a, like, a, what was it, a two-way mirror? We had that shot. Bingo, our lead character's gay. Now, uh, back in the alley scene where he put his hand on the guy's shoulder, 
and the Boston cops were sort of starting to pick it out. I don't know if you picked that out quite yet as you're watching it, but you know, there's no, uh, there's no question now, is there? But he is gay, and oh, I love this little joke right here. Hold on. What are you doing? I just wanted to cuddle. Cuddle. What a fag. I love the wounded look on that kid's face. Look at him. He's perfect. Anyway, uh, I made his character gay because, uh, number one, that's the way I saw him. But later on, I found out what I, you know, once I was done writing the script, what I got out of that. He's at odds with all the, you know, ultra-heterosexual Boston cops. He's better than all of them. And he makes his, throughout the script, to these police officers, he makes his homosexuality a non-issue. They're able to get around it, even, it's the, even though it's the most taboo of things for them. Uh, and worship him as the brilliant investigator that he is and know him for the man that he is. And uh, that's one of the things that I, I really enjoyed about making his character gay. Look, fuck all these other guys. This was their target, the fag man. The what man? There's our little Freudian slip for the day. The fat man. Well, Freud was right. Now, this one was a fun scene to shoot right here. We had, this is all built. This is why, this is spending a good amount of the budget right here in this one room because I knew how important it was. Willem came up, you know, he, he, we were going through rehearsal and he was having problems with this scene. He said it was the spacing. And when, uh, you know, an actor says something like that to a director, I mean, what do you do with that? The guy says it's the spacing. What do you want me to make the room bigger? I have no idea what you're talking about. So I you know, took five and I sat down, I listened to Willem and this is when he taught me that with the person that's as good as he is, you, you just shut up and listen sometimes and you, you do what he, you know, you, you work through it. And we went out in the parking lot, I said, well, maybe you can walk along the top of the couch, which ended up being a lot more. So he's like presiding over this thing, he liked that. And then we came up with this river dance joke, which he just did. And uh, I didn't know if it worked or not, but uh, I, played it for my brother and he fell out of his chair laughing on set and I just I knew we had a, a great joke there in Greek and Roman mythology when you died you'd have to pay the toll to Charon the boatman who ferried you across to the gates of judgment this made sure the dead came to atone for what they did during their lives the Tectodala Papascalius Jesus you're the first one that ever got that yeah well I'm an expert in nameology Willem is just merciless with the way he sort of punks the Boston cops. And as you can see him getting more and more disheveled during the investigation. Uh, that's going to be a theme throughout the whole film until finally he's sort of at his wit's end. And I've found that, you know, your better artists, as they begin to create and go through their through their creativity, they get more and just more and more dirty, more and more filthy more and more not caring about all the little things that we seem to, to sidetrack ourselves in life, like dress or smelling good or washing or all that stuff. So I wanted a slow degradation of Willem's character into just complete, uh, when, he's, when he's at his dirtiest, he's at the very top of his game later on. Hey, wait a minute. Stay with me, boys. What did they do to make two such identical wounds? Two men of similar height dropped this guy down each put some iron to his head, and boom, that's all she freaking wrote. What about one guy, two guns? Eh, possible, but unlikely the angles are too extreme. A guy holding two guns to the back of your noodle is gonna shoot straight ahead. He won't cock out his elbows, makes no sense. Besides, you telling me 
One guy came in here and killed eight men with eight extremely well-aimed shots in just a few seconds, no way. Had to be at least two. And there's our transition. That brings us into flashback, that flash of white every time. And we continue with the scene. It's that staggered time thing where you see Willem investigate the crime first and then see how the brothers did it. That was one of the things I thought was um, interesting and needed to be salvaged and taken from script to film, you know? That was one of the things that I really felt uh, passionately about, you know, to see. And then you can think back, you know, he was wrong here, he was right here, because now we as the audience know what, what happened. You know, a lot of people think that that guy, that big fat Russian guy talking there, that he's just got a bad wig on, but it's weird because that is that dude's hair, and it was so, I mean, it just looks so bad, you know? I said, don't touch it. <laughs> Leave it like that just to have a good story to tell at the end of the day. Now this is just pure me and my own brother. This, uh, <laughs> this whole right in the middle of something important, having the sibling rivalry come in. Fuck you. I'm sweating my ass off dragging your fucking rope around. Must weigh 30 pounds. Shh. You're doing some serious shit. Man. Get the fucking hold of yourself. Oh, fuck you. I'm not the rope toting Charlie Bros. I want to be this getting this fucking lost. Would you fucking shut it? <laughs> that was an ad lib right there. Flannery just cracked him on the head with the flashlight. It was great. And got them all pissed off, and they're really going at it in here. Jesus fucking cursed. Oh, shit. Boom. I really like this shot. Now there is the prayer. And we go to black and white, which was a choice that uh, I would not get away from because to them it is black and white. Now they more resemble a couple of priests walking through a battlefield than what uh, really happened. So that was the re you know, if you're gonna go black and white, you gotta have a reason for it. If you're gonna go slow-mo, you gotta have a reason for it. If you're gonna use bullet photography, you have to have a reason for it. To me, that was, the reason was that it's exactly that cut and dry to them. If you're an evil person, a gangster, you're gonna die. And I shall count thee among my favored sheep. The prayer, actually, people think that they've found that prayer in the Bible. Let me just tell all you right now, I made that up. So you, you, you can search and search, you're not going to find it. My father actually helped me out with that one. Television is the explanation. Yeah, I see how his tie is loose now. He's unbuttoned his shirt, his hair's a little bit more screwed up. He seems more and more concerned, more into his stuff. Again, with that slow degradation into... And he becomes angry, and boom, we're back in flashback again. Name one thing you're going to need this stupid fucking rope for. 
Oh, that was way easier than I thought. Hey. You know, on TV, you always got that guy that jumps over the sofa. Yeah, then you gotta shoot him for 10 fucking minutes, too. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite jokes oh, in there. Because that is just ridiculous. Every time you flip on a TV show, you got these guys in a, you know, two-by-two two room shooting at each other for a half an hour. It's, like, so fake. But then again, you know, we're having fun with it, too, you know? When's the last time you've seen two guys drop through a ceiling, you know, upside down and kill everybody? <laughs> you know? It's just a little bit more uh, spectacular, I guess. And this right here is one of the reasons that uh, I used Rocco because of the, you know, look at his look on his face. <laughs> I just love the guy. He's just so, you know, he can transmit a million things in just one, one quick look. Outstanding actor. And it seems so like, you know, if, if this were to happen, you know, it's more of a natural thing here. They, they, it's brutal, sure. Don't you, don't you, we're on the same side. Boss, my son, Nina's back up, huh? And he starts explaining cool. himself away. I'm a funny man, that ain't my name. Where's they your gun? Where's your gun? That ain't my real name. I suppose um, I should talk a little bit about what it is to be a first-time filmmaker and the difficulties of it. It is very difficult to get into this business. It is very difficult to, to direct a film, but... And when you're a first-time director, all these technicians and all these actors, they're all looking at you, you know. They're waiting for you to prove yourself. And um, with a film this fun, I mean, our set was just a laugh riot all the time. Everybody was having a great time. I'll know those people for the rest of my life, you know, because they were working on something that they loved, you know. They would come into my office, you know, and, and you know, look for reasons you know, try to have me convince them. You know, they work on all these things that, that they don't have much faith in, and they read something like Boondocks, and they, you know, they love the script, and they're laughing out loud, and they, they come in, and they want me to convince them, so I do. But that stigma never really goes away until you yell action, you know? And the first day on set, I guess I had proved myself enough, and it was on, and from that point forward, it was just, uh, just so fun and so terrific. And all these great stories come out of it, and all these life, you know, achievements and moments that stick with you forever. And uh, somehow in the difficulty of it lies the magic of it. Somehow in everybody taking a chance and everybody putting themselves out there a little bit. I guess that's what life's all about, you know, taking risks. I remember there was this, I was out having a smoke on my balcony one day, and a little uh, black girl came walking by with a dog. And she looked up and saw my boondock poster on my wall, and she said, do you have anything to do with that movie? I said, yeah, I wrote and directed it, you know, told her. And she just flipped out. She loved the movie, you know. And here I am looking at this person who is just not the demographic for this film. You know, and it, it just flipped me sideways. And so many little incidents like that have occurred, you know. Little things where you just find fans where you just never expected. You know, on the Internet, all these people looking for DVDs and having to order them from Canada or Japan or wherever. And uh, well, the problem was that um, we had our industry screening about two weeks after the Columbine incident. And that was when the president was forming judiciary committees, coming down on violent films. Uh, you'd see the basketball diaries and the matrix being played on the news every day. 
So Boondocks did not have a chance. Uh, just literally was blacklisted from U.S. screens. And uh, you put in all this work and had this wonderful time and met all these people and, and you're standing there having accomplished something and, and being very proud of what you've done. So it's a go home and slit your wrists, spike your vein and drink yourself silly type of a thing. You know, this, this thing that happened 1,500 miles away that I had nothing to do with has such a drastic effect on, uh, on one's life like that. And I went to school in Colorado, you know. I got an aunt there. I go back there three, four times a year. It was a horrible, horrible incident. It was a horrible thing. And um, it also just killed any chance of theatrical release in the U.S. But, like I said, you know, it gets out there on video. It goes on screens in all these other countries, DVD, video, home, you know, like uh, home box office type things, B Sky B in the U.K., and... It has a life out there, you know. I guess all that really matters at the end of the day is that people see it and what do they think. And what happened with Boondocks is it became just this instant cult success and uh, at a very low point in my life where I'm sitting there going, geez, you know, I do all this work and it's my very, you know, the only thing I've ever done, really, the only, uh, only thing I've ever directed, only script I had ever written. And, uh, you know, what was it all for? And the little, you know, when you're you getting talked to on the Internet and all these kids and running into these fans everywhere and all your friends are coming home telling stories about how they were talking about it at bars. And I guess it's just really, you know, comforting and, and surprising and, and just kind of nice that to know that it did go out there and it did affect people and, uh, and to see how much they did respond to it. So... I guess I'll take this moment to thank all the fans of Boondocks and uh, hope you enjoy this DVD. You ruined me. I'm fucking done. Permanent fucking package, boy. Who says that? You can take credit on that, you know. What, are you serious? Yeah. Fuck it. If you think about it, it's all you can do, really. And you can't go in there and tell them it was awesome. Climb the carpet ladder, boy. Don't <laughs> yeah, you know this scene right here? I'm not a big cat fan. I uh, was in a relationship with a young lady who uh, had four cats that drove me nuts. So uh, this, is, this is the only scene in here that's very self-indulgent uh, on my part. Uh, it's funny, you know, to me anyway, and to sick people with my same sense of humor. But... Uh, here we go. Sorry, kitty. Sorry, kitty. Bye-bye now. <clears throat> now. I don't hate cats. I know they're docile, you know, godlike little creatures, but at the same time, uh, that was just my own personal frustration. Perhaps it was a bit over the top. Anybody that's offended, I'm sorry. Is it dead? Oh, my God. I like that last line, though. Rocco put a button on the scene with, uh, is it dead? <laughs> His cat splattered all over the room. Is it dead? No, it's still hanging on. Yeah, Rocco, uh, Rocco and the brothers had, to, Rocco and Sean and Norm had this great relationship, too. You know, since they were the best friend on film, I just, uh, was hoping, um, that in real life they would be, too. You know, that, that they'd develop some kind of affection that would translate, and man, did I ever get that. These three were like, uh, Peas in a pod, man. Always going out, having drinks. I remember there's this one time 
there was a bar right down the street from where we were staying, and uh, Rocco took a shine to one of the waitresses there. And uh, she just was giving him no play. You know, we'd always go to this. It was like our after-hours bar. We'd always go there when we were done. And everybody kind of, you know, like 15, 20 of us at a time would kind of know that Rocco liked this girl and she wasn't having it. And uh, so finally he goes, I'm up here doing a film starring a movie opposite Willem Dafoe. Turns out that, uh, that Willem's her favorite actor. She's like, yeah, whatever, you loser, get out of here. So uh, we told Defoe about it, and we all went down to the bar, and everybody's in on it, you know? And this poor girl comes out of the kitchen, and uh, she sees Defoe. I mean, she almost dropped all the drinks she had there, you know? And uh, she comes up to the table with these quivering hands and, a, and a, uh, you know, a pen and a napkin, asked him for an autograph. And he's just about to sign it, and he goes, I'll sign it if Rocco says it's okay. <laughs> and Rocco turned to him and go, yeah, go ahead. Like he was, like he was a mafia don or something. Oh man, we were just dying over that one for a couple of weeks. It's just not the way things happen. It's, uh, I mean, thanks for your concern and all, but that just ain't the thing of it. Yeah, do me a favor, right, Rock? Just roll it around a bit on your way in. What do you for me? No, no, no rolling. Nothing needs to be rolled. And Sean and Norm, and uh, we all went. Uh, I don't know if Norm was there. I think maybe he was, but we all went paintball. We played paintball one, uh, one weekend. It was like a whole squad of us, and and it was like uh, me and Sean just like <laughs> we took charge, and there's all these little games you play. Came back all bruised and battered, full of sand, drank, had the greatest time. The kid's just a hoot to hang out with. Has this really hot girlfriend too. Very jealous, very upset about that. He met her on the on the film. Wonderful girl. Listen, you get in there, you start getting the bad vibe, you get the fuck out quick. That scene we just did right there had about the word "fuck" comes in about 37 times in that scene. I got a lot of flack from that from some from a lot of people, but uh, you know these the this is the way people talk where I'm from. You know I'm from New England. I was born in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and lived all up and down the East Coast. And my family is very poor. And then all of a sudden, my father you know made a few deals, and we got to like upper middle class and. All my life, I've just had friends that we, we got terrible mouths, you know. My mother's still upset about my, my mother. My mother's a saint, and she just, you know. It, but to to not do that would have been, you know, it would like present a question mark in people's heads, you know. Why are these two guys that are killing people talking like choir boys? So I wanted to add that legitimacy with their with their lingo. Back Back and this is like the perfect quintessential Rocco right here. This is how crazy he gets in real life. <laughs> he will just lose it. It's just so funny when it happens. He'll start screaming at you. You know, too, there's, there's a lot of kids out there in film school and stuff like that. I've, I've spoken at... Uh, UCLA, USC, uh, Boston University, you know, and um, they all seem to have the same question, you know, how do you do it, do you have to know somebody? I'm a living proof that you just don't have to know anybody. My best friend is named Chris Brinker, who uh, produced this film, and he is an amazing person, but he wasn't a producer, you know? He was a guy that worked on, uh, he was an assistant to a, to a movie guy, 
And of course, like all young assistants, they want to get their own stuff off the ground and stuff, but they, they don't have any power. They don't do. If you know an assistant, I mean, it's almost better than a bartender. At least you get free drinks, right? But um, I had lost track of CB for a couple of years, and he came into the bar where I was bartending. And, uh, ooh, I love that shot. <laughs> I was going to have that put on a T-shirt. I love that line. Anyway, me and CB were uh, sitting there talking. He said, what are you doing now? I said, I wrote this script. And I didn't even know he was in the movie business. Not that he was, because like I said, he was just an assistant. He, uh, you know, he read the script. He said, do you mind if I handle this? And I was like, do what, what are you talking, knock yourself out, you know? <laughs> I don't know anybody. So he was trying to like grassroots pedal this script around. And I thought that uh, it would blend in with all the other crap in Hollywood because now that I've read a bunch of scripts, I know that these poor people just got to read, 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 and they never find anything original or with its own voice. And Boondocks um, stood out, and it was almost like an overnight thing. You know, it was just a few days, and suddenly these big-time guys were coming into the bar talking about millions of dollars budgets, you know, ordering a Bud Light from me. They're like, hey, you know, how about $5 million to do this movie? I said, you know, great, I need two fifty for the Bud Light. I mean, it was just that ridiculous. And it was this, you know, from zero to hero thing, and suddenly all these people were coming in, and then newspapers and agencies, and, and, uh, and it was not because I knew somebody, because, like I said, I didn't, and it wasn't because... CB was some powerful guy because he wasn't. It was two guys who were friends that accomplished something great together. I gave him the, the tools he needed. I gave him a creative script, and he gave me the tools that I needed. He put me in the rooms with the right people by, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, doing whatever the hell he had to do to get it done because he believed in it. And uh, rather than knowing some studio exec, it's best to just trust somebody who's smart and uh, has your best interests at heart, you know, and who you love, who's a friend of yours. Love this shot right here. Some really cool camera work on that. Rock, did anybody see you? Fuck, man, I might as well have gone around posting flyers. Right out in public, man. Liberate, isn't it? Let's fucking go! You know, it is a bit. Yeah, and Rocco, he's that kind of guy, you know? He came to town like in 1979 or something. Worked his ass off, you know, trying to be an actor and get into things and for, for 10 or 15 years you know there's so many people I know like that that are so gifted I mean look at this guy he's so such a talent you know and he just never got a shot and uh, you know now he got his shot and, it, and, and now he gets recognized where he goes and he he can hold his head up a little bit and that, that that's one of the precious things about this movie to me that uh, a guy like that who deserved it put in the time and done his thing and, you know, gave it up. Like I said, because he's been here for like 27 years. For the first 15, he tried his ass off. Couldn't get anything. And, uh, and in the last 10 or 12, he was just, you know, resigned to being a bartender. And here I see this, this, this cat with all this, 
charisma, you know, and all this, uh, these great things inside of him and all this stupid stuff he says that's just so pricelessly funny. And we're just hanging out. And I'm glad to have been able to give him this shot. And um, Rocco and I watched this movie and we're very proud of it because it does represent the first thing we've both done, you know. And he's one of my dearest friends. We hang out all the time. See, a lot of people don't know what Norm says here. He says, you look like Mushmouth from Fat Albert. I don't know if anybody remembers Fat Albert, but he does look exactly like him in that ridiculous mask. You look fucking scary, man. <laughs> now, Rock, are you sure that you're all became and that was an ad-lib right there. There was a lot of ad-libbing going on on the set, you know? These boys would get so close to the roles of the brothers that they would just throw something in there sometimes, you know? Sometimes they'd ask, but after a while, I was just like, man, if you feel it, do it, because you guys would just, I mean, they get so close to it. A director can have all the vision in the world, but it's the actors that are going to pull it off for you. They can get closer to these characters than you ever could, no matter how much you think about them, no matter what, you know, because I wrote and directed these characters. And I, I never, th that was one of the things I learned on set, that no matter how much I thought I knew, no matter how much of a vision I had for this movie, these actors, uh, especially, you know, the, the four leads, Rocco, Willem, Sean, Norm, they were so close to the characters, and they, they could just bring things out that I'd never thought of that were never on the script, little moments here and there that were just precious and perfect, you know? talking to the dancer. Now as Willem's getting closer and closer to the brothers, this is where we start to intercut the scenes. You don't so much see him go through an entire investigation and then show what happened. We start to intercut them as he's getting closer to them. And that's just sort of a film thing that can help out the story and help out, you know, convey your point. Love this shot right here. Perhaps the largest single breast ever put on screen. There's Rocco grabbing his seat. I thought that was the funniest shot in the whole flip. I'll tip her. Everybody misses that line, I'll tip her. Because they're laughing that he grabbed the tip. They miss him saying, I'll tip her. And again, there's Willem playing with the feather boa. That was his idea. Allow me to enlighten you, gentlemen, to the protocol of the porno industry, as I'm sure you've never been in one of these places before. A man goes into the booth. Puts the money through the slot. See, and now it's, it becomes this thing where Willem's sort of presiding over this and getting a little bit cocky and, and uh, you know, a little bit flamboyant. He's knowing these guys more. They're starting to get to know him better. They're starting to like him. And to be able to make all the taboos that were trampled upon in this movie uh, uh, non-issues was is one of the biggest things that, that, uh, that I'm most proud of, you know? Willem's homosexuality becomes a non-issue. We get to know him, we get to love his character, so do these Boston cops. We get to see that happen. We get to see 
this adverse thing made into a non-issue. The way they use racial humor, to me, makes it a non-issue. And by doing that, we show what's really important, you know, what's, what really matters. I remember reading an um, article in one of the local, local magazines, local rags around Los Angeles, these, these newspapers they got on just about every corner, about how homosexuals were um, tired of being portrayed as limp-wristed fairies that tiptoe through the tulips in their stereotypical roles in every movie. I had a really strange moment with a with a young man who <laughs> we'd all, you know, he's a friend of ours, you know. We all we'd all kind of known he was gay, but he'd never said anything about it. And he watched this movie and came out of the closet right in front of me, thanked me for writing a gay character that was strong and confident and and uh, was the you know ruled this aspect of the film so so righteously. And, and he started crying and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, wow, power of film just mystifies me. And it could be because it's the last feudal system, you know? You're really going out there as a general with a bunch of soldiers and just getting it done. And, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, there's all these kids at film school that ask you about how oh, this artistic thing you did or this artistic thing you did. But you're not on set with an ascot and a beret you know, saying, let the genius begin. You know, we don't do it that way. The kids today that are directing, you know, their first films and, and having any type of success with it, even though Boondocks is a cult success, they're more like doing it the way I am, you know, knowing how much money they have, knowing how much time they have, knowing that they have to get the best possible thing, you know. And a lot of the film was done in, in, in two, three takes at a time. We didn't have the time to go do five and ten takes on something. There was one day I had to get 35 setups in one day. That means every time you yell cut and it's a good take, you change lights, put more film in the camera, get new actors up on and, and 35 is, is almost television speed. And we got it. We made that day. And it's because, you know, like I said, you, you get this, this feudal system and everybody starts having faith. You know, they start seeing the dailies. I'd do this thing where every Friday after work we'd get wine and cheese down there on big screen TV and show the whole cast and crew all the dailies. And they were so proud and happy with what they were seeing and, and excited about what they were doing that the next time, you know, I needed them to go the extra yard, it wasn't even a conversation. You know, I had guys coming to me saying, got your back, don't worry about it, you know. Whereas the producer will come up and say, Oh my God, we don't have the money for this. We're going into a meal penalty. We're doing this, 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 and this. Oh, we're screwed, we're screwed, we're screwed. The guy that heads up that whole department comes up to me and says, don't worry about it. I got it taken care of, Troy. We like what we're doing. We got your back. Those are the types of things that I think young directors are, are, are going through today. You know, not so much the uh, shooting glasses and the scarf, you know? That's our shit. Oh, come on. The victims were found at a local adult entertainment parlor. These murders, coupled with the three suspected mob-related killings that occurred at this local Boston deli earlier this afternoon, brings the death toll to six just today. There is no doubt that all the victims have been criminals. Perhaps this explains why a public outcry to have these crimes stopped has not been heard. Ah, these two crime scenes are related. This right here was Willem's first day on set, I remember, we, because you, you don't really shoot in sequence. And you notice how dreary, the, and there he is picking his nose, like I said. <laughs> Mr. Ferry gets all gross in this flick a little bit here. But um, this was some of the first footage that these guys had together. Does this look like a friggin' post office to you? This guy came in here with intent. Maybe he didn't know exactly what it was. And I was so pleased with it when I saw the dailies because here 
and the first time the, the the four of them are together, it looks like a natural progression of incidents from the alley where they first met this guy. They're all disheveled. They're all tired. They're all exchanging a dialogue with him, and there he is, boom, he touches a guy by slapping him on the face right there and doesn't have much of a reaction to it because they know each other now. They're getting more into it now. But really, the hearts of these three actors right now as we're seeing this are beating 10,000 miles an hour because they're sitting there looking at Elias from Platoon, man, you know? They're looking at uh, Bobby Peru from <laughs> from um, Wild at Heart. They're looking at all the great roles that Willem's done and, and knowing that here, here they are in a scene with one of their all-time favorites, you know? Ah, this guy right here. His name is Carmine DiStefano. He's really blind, and it was... Just when the script was uh, getting hot, it was starting to make the trades and everybody wanted it. I come to the bar one day, where I no longer worked, I just went there to drink. <laughs> and my brother says, there's a blind guy waiting for you. I look over, see this guy. And he says, oh, Duffy, you know, uh, you're Irish and I'm Italian and I understand you got this thing going on. And, uh, I, you know, put my son in your film. And he gave me a picture of his son, you know. And uh, I agreed to do it, unfortunately, because we shot the damn thing in Toronto. I couldn't put his son in the film. Tried to get him in on the Boston stretch, because we shot a few days in Boston to get these overheads. And this, this sequence right here in the prison was in Boston, the last to shoot inside the uh, Charles Street prison. Excellent room. But uh, so Carmine's just, you know, telling me about his son. And then I go back through my script, because he just had this charisma about him, you know, just a nice old guy trying to do something for his for his kid and uh, I made the character blind and wrote him into it hoping against hope that we could cast him and at the very last second the Toronto um, I believe it's Ayatza up there who uh, agreed to, to let this guy be flown in from LA to, to play this role and he's so legit I mean his face looks like a saddlebag he's just uh, he just and he's got that you know he's got that mafioso growling tone and uh, he just he just worked, you know. So even in the after the script was finished, you know, you're still writing, you're still meeting people. All this stuff comes from life, you know. It's not like a, some big mystery. People say, "How did you think of this? How did you think of that?" I don't know, man. I just did. I just thought of it, you know. I met this guy. I liked him. Very touching. That he was trying to do something for his son, which I was pretty upset that I couldn't couldn't uh, get him in there. But hey, I'll, I'll get him on the next one. And I wrote him in, you know. And he's not an actor. He's never acted, you know. He's been in a couple things now since this, but he just, I don't know, it just fit. So I guess you can take that for whatever you want. He's been rotting in the can the last 25 or 30 years. Don't even know if he's still alive or if he's even up to it. This whole birdcage thing with Billy. Now, he's the ultimate badass. I love this look. Boom, right there. And that 6570534 was my phone number at the time. <laughs> and I just uh, did that for my own personal joke whenever I was watching the, f the film. But Billy, uh, I remember when I first met Billy, just the greatest guy. And his dramatic potential uh, as an actor to me was unexplored. And he said to uh, he said, Dolph, I want to be a baddie. That's what he said. I want to be a baddie. I'm sick of being a goodie. You know, he was the guy on the head of the class and stuff like that. He's playing all the, and all these comic characters. I said, well, shit, you know, 
I got the guy for you, you know. This badass comes in the last 15 minutes of the film and fucks everybody up. So Billy was, you know, I pitched to him how I was going to film him and, I, and how his, his, his wardrobe and the guns he used and, the, and something um, that I'm quite proud of coming up here, uh, uh, which is a combination of both guns and wardrobe. And Billy was just like, I'm on. You know, he called his agent right there at the table, you know, and he said, I know I'm going to get paid chicken feed, but I'm doing the movie, you know, make it, make it happen. Just one of those guys that's so, you know, down with it. And when he came to shoot his stuff... It was times where we were in these neighborhoods. You're going to see it coming up here, but we're in a neighborhood shooting, and I look over, and Billy is giving a comedy set to, like, 100 people, you know? Mothers, fathers, kids, everybody's just cracking everybody up. I had to, like, pull him away from his audience to come do his, do his scenes. It was so funny. It was one of those things, you know? It's just like whenever we needed, like, a little... A little uh, shot in the arm, you know. Billy suddenly was getting there, you know, or Willem was having his first day, or Rocco was. This was the day, you know, where uh, where Rocco died, you know. He was looking forward to to dying the entire film. <laughs> it was his big scene, you know. Okay. This whole sequence, starting from. Here is my absolute favorite part of the film uh, and something that I'm most proud of all the way up to the, the gunfight in the streets between Billy and the brothers. There he goes. This whole thing, it was written this way, you know. We do see Smecker's character, Willem, going through the scene with them, you know, almost dictating their actions as they're taking. It's kind of a Rod Serling type thing from... Uh, from the Twilight Zone, but, and it was shot separately, you know? We shot it, like, sort of all in one day, but it's all jumbled up and stuff, and you never know how good things are going to edit together. And when I finally got it edited the way I wanted to, I was so pleased with the way it had turned out. And here's another music thing. If we listen to the music as they go in the room here. They know that this door can only be opened from the inside, so they wait. And when that door opens, man, nobody's, nobody's ready for it. So bang, got this rockin' tune playing here. What I had was five to one by the doors. But again, $17 million. You can't use five to one by the doors. And it was funny because once this whole scenario, once this music stops, when we had five to one there, we had edited it, and then we laid five to one over it, and it was exactly the length of what uh, what the scene was, so we figured, you know, hey, this is meant to be, but uh, you know, you find out that that music is just so damn expensive. That's one of the guys at the telephone there. That was one of is our executive producer, Don Carmody. If you ever do a film in Toronto, which a lot of people are doing now, get Don Carmody or you're screwed. He's the best of the best. He's got that whole town wired in. So that means one of our shooters dropped to his knees. And here is Rocco's really only scene with Defoe. He's got a mask on. He was kind of upset about that. He was like, couldn't I just take the mask off for a minute just so I could show my mother picture? <laughs> so she watches it, she knows it's me under there. Man, this guy's kind of your characteristic cleaner. Something went wrong right here. 
And I just love the way it flows, you know. Every time Defoe says something, they react to it. Every time he, you know, tells people what happened, they do it. And it's just the way it all flowed together like this, and, and especially with all the psycho stuff that happens, you know. Rocco gets attacked by this guy and ends up killing him with a pool ball, you know, like a cue ball. You know, all the stuff that, that Willem couldn't have predicted and really didn't figure out when he was going through his, you know, scenes. The, the, his character never really figured it out because you probably, you know, it is one of those little things that happened that, that you can't figure out. And here he is wrong. These guys is a real sicko. He knew this man. He wanted him to suffer. See, so he's saying, all right, this guy was a sicko and he wanted him to suffer, but here's Rocco begging for his life, you know? And there's Chris Brinker right there. Remember that kid's face. He's the one that just got shot by uh, Sean Patrick Flannery right there. He's the guy that produced this film, and uh, he is my best friend, and he was, the, you know, he and I are 50-50 partners, and, and whenever I watch this movie, I remember all the things that he did, you know, and how much, it, how much it's better to have somebody have faith in you and be behind you and believe in you than it is to have all the powerful people in Hollywood behind you. You did fine. It was nicely done. They exited out the front door. And now here he is. This is the scene. He's disheveled as hell. He's at the end of his rope. He's chain smoking, hair fucked up, shirt fucked up, sweating everywhere. It's sort of the, uh, you know, end point of the arc of his character. Of course, he comes back and does something twice as psycho, but love this whole gunfight sequence. There we go. Now that's the ultimate, uh, that's the ultimate collaboration of wardrobe and um, gun wrangling right there. You know, when you put a wardrobe lady and a gun guy together in the same room, that's pretty much a recipe for disaster. But they had to work together and get this done. It turned out so well. I was wearing that stupid uh, vest around the office for like three days. Nobody could get it off me. I had them put guns in it and walking around. It was just so cool. Yeah, and here we go. This was one thing I really wanted to do. It's kind of a John Woo type of a ripoff, you know, where you fade out all the sound and, and put in a music thing. He did it in Face Off with uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And I did it here with um, score from our wonderful, wonderful uh, tunesmith, Jeff Dana, who scored the film. This is all his work right here. He wrote it for this very scene. And I just loved it, how majestic it was and how even in the midst of this, this violence, all this beauty is shown and Willem's character's coming to bear and all the, the light going through the smoke there, it almost looks like the inside of a church sometimes. And right here, when Willem shot the gun into the air, uh, that wasn't planned. That's another thing, you know. He said, uh, everybody's shooting. I want to shoot. So I was like, well, you can't shoot at anybody. I mean, you can't shoot at Billy, and you can't shoot at the brothers. Maybe you can shoot right up in the air. So he's like, yeah, that's cool. And he, and he did it. And he did it while screaming, his mouth open, and just ended up being great. Almost like a platoon when he... that. Uh, you know, he drops to his knees and puts his hands up in platoon like that. And then all of a sudden, the frantic nature of of everything that has happened here will bring the sound back in, and it's a it's a clusterfuck. 
Yeah, and here's the neighborhood where we had to rip Billy away from all the families right here. This whole gun battle is taking place here. There's so many people that come out, you know, because we rigged the front of this house with thousands of squibs, and they're all so interested in stuff. And during that scene uh, that we just saw where the camera's going around Willem, and he's conducting, and all the, the, the violence is going on in the background, what you didn't see was uh, the two angles of, of that... Uh, scene to his right and left where there's like 300 people standing off just watching on the side. You know, I knew I was only going to need the brothers behind him and then Billy behind him, so the sides really didn't matter. But it was funny watching the dailies because there's all these people, you know, kids on bikes standing, standing there watching, right in the shot, slow-mo, and Willem's there conducting. Well, it was funny when we were in Japan. I went to Japan to uh, open the film there because it actually made theater screens in Japan. They didn't have the same political views of the United States made theater screens in lots of countries actually but Japan was like one of the one of the big ones we went over there and uh, when we showed that you know the finger on the ground the the Japanese audiences laughed and and the American audiences were so stunned oh my god and uh, just showed me the difference between cultures here and how they perceived this And this, I would have to say, what happens here with the how this scene descends from anger and frustration and a frenzy into into a very brutal type of caring for one another, really, because that's what they're doing here. They're helping each other, sealing up their wounds. And it's difficult and harsh and bloody and brutal. But at the same time, I wanted to put this music behind it again. Dana came through with the wonderful sounds on here. And we see these guys in a very brutal way saying that they love each other a little bit, you know? And I love that shot when it goes to a two, two brothers like that. It's just great. And I suppose in a lot of ways, you know, these two brothers are sort of a fan. My brother's only a year, year and a half younger than I am. And we came out to L.A., you know, to do our thing. And I guess it's sort of a fantasy of, you know, how close these two brothers, these two characters are sort of a fantasy of how close I want to, you know, I want our relationship to be, me and my brother Taylor. And, uh, you know, he and I talked about this. And, and uh, he and I... Um, I don't know, I guess they're the fantasies of what we wish we could be in a lot of ways. <laughs> not that we've ever killed anybody, because <laughs> we certainly have not, to the best of your knowledge. But uh, me and Taylor living in this, and we didn't have any money. We were living in a real rat hole, crack den to my left, heroin guy across the hall guns in the halls and stuff like that. And all this violence was around us, you know, in in Hollywood where we lived, right on our streets, right outside our windows. And um, I guess we sort of wish we could do something about it. So that, that's, this film is my protest to that. This film is my protest to feeling like a victim in my own home, to having my car and motorcycle vandalized, to having... Uh, 
violence done to me and those around me and, and, and having the people that I love suffer from it. And, uh, well, I, I, I think that's wrong. I guess at this point, I'd like to address some heavy comparisons that I think have been made on Boondocks. I know have been made. I read it all over the Internet in certain interviews and, and certain uh, reviews and magazines. Uh, and the two ones that seem to come up all the time are Quentin Tarantino and uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, this guy Guy Ritchie. I will not address the Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels simply because Boondocks was done and edited before Lock, Stock ever hit uh, theaters. Love the movie, but Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels was just simply not a predecessor to the Boondock Saints. Therefore, any comparison is fruitless. Tarantino's another story. Uh, I happen to really like Quentin Tarantino. I think that uh, for the most part, he sort of reinvented cool and independent film. I can honestly say that I wasn't, uh, the strictest comparisons were, oh, uh, he reads a prayer from the Bible bef before he kills somebody in Pulp Fiction, and then that, that's what you do in this one. And then uh, he blows a guy's head off accidentally, and then you blow up the cat accidentally. Well, yeah, but um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it was like an homage or anything like that because I wasn't thinking about it, you know. I just wrote something like I've explained the cat. And I, I, I am not a big fan of cats. <laughs> I was tortured by these four fucking felines forever, and that was an indulgent scene. Also, you know, I think that everybody gets it. You know, when Tarantino came out with his stuff, I go watch the movie. I'm, I'm dancing a jig on the way home. And uh, I read in the paper, you know, the next day, you know, everybody's saying he clipped it from this film or that film, and he stole uh, some stuff from City on Fire, which I rented and didn't really see, you know. I, I was like, it's it's just like, so what? You know, we're creators. We, we go and we do these things to the best of our ability, and uh, there are similarities and there are differences, and, and everybody's going to have their own opinion about it. But I guess, you know, it could be worse, man. What if they, 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 they compared me to a guy that I really like, you know? And uh, I've also read certain comparisons to John Woo in the, in, the, in, the, in the way it was shot and stuff like that. Hey, I could be in worse company, you know? I love those are two of my favorite filmmakers. And Coppola and Scorsese, again, favorites, favorites, great. Uh, but I think the difference is, a very striking difference, is that it's good that we're at this scene right now because this is where Willem's character changes and he decides to help these brothers because he thinks that what they're doing is right. The difference is that um, this film, with all its comedy, with all the crazy things that happen, with all the unbelievable scenarios, with all the over-the-topness of it, still has a very, very serious point behind it. There is a, a, a rhyme to this, you know, that is capital punishment vigilantism. Is it right? Well, I don't know. You know, and to answer that question, I guess everybody's going to have to dig inside themselves personally. But uh, the seriousness of it is like with, with, with Tarantino's films, you know, you almost get the feeling like everybody could die in a hail of gunfire at the end and be cool. And I would because he'd make it that way. But um, I don't want to see Rocco die. I don't want to see the brothers die. I don't want to see Willem die, you know. I, these are characters that I care about. These are the, the, the resounding point of the film, I think, has been made, which is why I've gotten so much feedback from it. And, and again, with these fans that just just love what they see, you know? There's plenty of 
thievery in just about everybody's work. There's plenty of originality. And just about everything anybody puts on film, you can compare to something. So I suppose I could be in worse company. It's much more difficult to take a stand. I want to stand for what I believe in, Father. First, you have to know what your beliefs are. I believe that these young men are right. You know them personally? Yes. Would they ever harm an innocent person for any reason? No. They would never do that. Well, the two Irish guys wouldn't. The Italian guy, he might. He's kind of an idiot. This guy right here, Jimmy Tingle, the priest. An authentic Bostonian. I knew I needed a couple characters that got that accent right. And, and uh, Jimmy was just one of those guys. He actually ended up being the guy after this on, uh, on 60 Minutes. He was like the new Andy Rooney for a little while there. I'm not sure if he's still doing it. The laws of God are higher than the laws of man. Yes, I was thinking that too. No, no, I was feeling it. All I needed was to hear you say it. And this is also like, you know, we got all this action and then we got like a five minute scene of, of guys just talking here in this, in this, in this confessional, you know, so it slows everything down. But my reason to do that, because I wanted that frantic pacing, like I said, right after the toilet stunt at the beginning, I wanted you to not be able to miss any of this film. My reason for slowing it down right here and uh, taking some time with that scene was because I felt it was absolutely necessary. A man who's about to make an ethical decision, a moral decision, he has a dilemma, and go do something that's very, very controversial. Um, and he's also the lead character, he's also gay, it's also Willem fucking Defoe, man. You know, it's like, you gotta take the time. You gotta, you gotta let the, you know, all the artsy people in the audience see his blue eyes shining up from behind the grate. And, watch his torment and torture and, and understand it and understand why he does what he's about to do because he's so frustrated with all these criminals that cut through the red tape of the system and get out and so now here they are communicating all of a sudden on the same side we're gonna hit over joe tonight we're in the comfort of his own home we're gonna move on to new york it's just it's getting a bit hard for us here be careful all right so call you tonight afterwards it was funny that day that Willem was doing the telephone thing. I was laying under him on this blanket, shouting up all the uh, you know, off-screen dialogue. Nobody does. The Duke's a fucking Houdini. He does a disappearing act. And right there, you know, like when uh, Carmine says the Duke's a fucking Houdini, he does a disappearing act, that was ad-libbed by him, you know? This is a guy that, I mean, he's dealt with these mobsters. He was a trucker for however God knows how long, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and... Uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts and up to even Maine and New Hampshire would tell me all about all this stuff and knew so much about the mob and knew these people and just had a real good feel for it. So I was like, hey, you know, if you want to toss something in there, toss something in. Like, once again, your actors are always going to get closer. We got him. They try to get in through the basement. How many? Three. Look at that shot. Bang. Now this, I remember, well, I pissed some people off this day. You know, the brothers are in trouble. They're all, they're all handcuffed to chairs and stuff like that, and all these tough mobsters are beating the crap out of them. It wasn't looking good the first couple times. It wasn't looking legit. 
So I started screaming at these guys, calling them names, you know. What are you, fucking sissy? What's the matter? Get, get them angry, you know. And they were pretty pissed off at me. But then once they saw what how it came together, they were like, oh, okay, I get what he's doing. Sometimes like that, you got to trick them a little bit, you know. <laughs> get their tits in a knot and then, ooh, yeah, this is a... Boom, shooting Rocco's other finger off. That was just nasty. And this is probably one of the most brutal scenes to watch in the film, the most violent. Everybody's covered with blood. Once again, we don't want to see these guys die. Okay. So what do you boys think? These guys are tough. They fucking ain't right. There ain't no fucking way they're gonna talk. And here comes Rocco's death scene, which he was waiting to do for a long time. And it was funny because he's such a great guy that all the all the wardrobe ladies and the makeup ladies on set, you know, they knew it was his time to die, and they were right off camera watching. And three of them had to leave the room because they started crying, you know. And it's all fake and stuff, you know. He's obviously just acting, but they had formed some kind of bond with him. They just couldn't really separate it from reality. I caught him. I was hugging these girls. I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> He's alive. He's right there. And Rocco had to come over and say everything was okay. See, I put uh, Connor, I put uh, Sean's character still seated and Norman down on top of him. Because there is a separation, you know, you almost think that these brothers are identical characters, they look alike, they, you know, they take their sips of the coffee at the same time, they know all these languages, they move in synchronicity with each other. But there is a separation between them. And the separation is that Sean's character, Connor McManus, is the older brother in a sense, even though they're supposed to be twins, it was they were written that way. Um, he's the older one, he's more in control, whereas Norm is, you know, like when Rocco comes busting into his house saying, we gotta get out of here, and his girlfriend starts giving him shit about the cat, you know? It's Norm's character, Murphy, that's crazy enough to say, yeah, screw it, we got us a new recruit, let's do this, I love it, you know, he likes the craziness, whereas Connor's trying to calm it down, you know? And that's sort of been me and my brother's relationship for a long time. I'm the one that tries to make everything we don't work out and keep my eye on the big picture, and Taylor's just uh, fucking crazy. Just a crazy bastard. But that's why I love him, you know? And you. And this guy right here is Carlo, you know, just f jumping off on Italian, you know, I don't know what the hell he was saying. He's like, oh, God, but I guess about I don't know, but he, I know he's saying something. I mean, he knows the lingo and all that. Yeah, again with the brutality, you know? And to not show this, to not show these things, I'm almost doing people a disservice, you know? Can't have some movie about these, these scumbags that are being killed by these two Irish brothers and not, and not show this stuff. Yeah, breaks his hand to get it through the cuff there. Go back downstairs, work on his press. Again with Dana's score, really good. Oh, my goodness. You know, I remember I showed this this to Jimmy, this uh, scene to Jimmy Tingle. And he said, uh, I know that chick. She's from Boston. Of course, that's uh, that's not a woman, ladies and gentlemen. Joey Bebo sent me over as entertainment. Yeah, so Willem dresses up like a hoe to get inside the house to gain entry. This poor guy right here. <laughs> Joe Pingay, I think is his name. Just a hell of an actor. And this 
is his first on-screen kiss. He hadn't even kissed a girl on film yet. He was flipping the fuck out, man. He was losing it. Poor guy. Finally, I got him. You know, I told Willem to do that lip thing right there and uh, really freak him out. And he comes up. I was like, Duffy, I don't know if I can do this, man. I don't know if I can do this. I calmed him down, got him ready, and, and you know, told him it was in God's hands, and he, he nailed it. And every, I've ne I'll never forget, right after I yelled cut, there was probably the whole cast and crew was sitting out there watching, you know, out in the darkness, and about 150 people just started screaming with laughter and cheers and stuff like that, and he was a hero. That's my buddy Chappie right there, Kevin Chapman from Boston. Great guy, since moved out to uh, L.A. to become an actor, very talented. One of those guys with the personality, you know? And oh, that's kind of sick, that little shot right there, huh? And this stuff right here, his dialogue, Joe's dialogue, ringside. You know, you want a shot at the title? That was all his ad-lib lines. I thought it was just funny. And welcome to the most disturbing shot in the film, ladies and gentlemen. Ew. Look at that. That's just disgusting. <laughs> um, Willem, Willem, too, because I, I told him we were shooting it in slow motion. He's like, what if I move my lips around afterwards so there'd be some kind of motion? And I was like, great, great. And it just ended up being so freaky. It was so great. I remember writing this like this, you know. And, uh, when you write something, th this, this scene right here, like, he says, it's on now, it's on now. He says, too far, it's on now, it's on now. And uh, the only thing I could think of was, you know, that dialogue. Because he's an FBI agent, and here he is inside of this psycho stuff, just going way out on a limb for what he believes in. And uh, I remember my brother watched it, and he goes, why does he say it's on now? Is he talking about the wig? <laughs> Did he put his wig on? Oh, there goes Chap, down like a sack of potatoes. That was great. I think we shot. I think we did that stupid part of that for like ten takes because we weren't getting the blood on the wall that we needed. This was a great big mansion up there in uh, in Toronto. It was a great location. And now here comes the. McManus family prayer again, but now it's being read, and you'll notice that the, the words sort of have the same connotations, whether you're killing an evil man or sending uh, the soul of your best friend up to heaven or so, you know, it, it, it has the same meaning, there's a dual meaning to the prayer, love that shot right there. And when Billy comes in and finishes off the prayer, we know that he is their mysterious uh, absentee father. And teeming with souls shall it ever be. In only partridge village for to sight. He just looks so cool. I remember Billy was having trouble with his lines that day, you know. And he said, I sat there and practiced them in front of the mirror 17,000 fucking times, and now on the day I'm losing it. I had to calm him down, and he got it. Actually, it's funny because Norm and Sean sat down with him and taught him the prayer and made sure that, you know, he was getting him back on here. And they ordered killings of no less than 17 men. And here is, you know, after all the, the brutality and, uh, the, you know, the humor and uh, all the things we've gone through uh, watching this film, the resounding overriding point of it is about to be made here. And um, 
whereas this guy is being tried in a court of law, the McManus father and sons are going to come in and try him uh, in their own court here in a minute. Genovese, the butcher, uh, because on Thursday she makes uh, agnolotti for um, Mr. Jacobetta. Now we don't like this guy because he killed Rocco, obviously, and he's responsible for all this death and destruction, and it gets a little, you know. <laughs> this is where we see what this is all about, and in a very, very uh, secure place where people are supposed to be safe, you know. And now a courtroom almost these days has become a place where murderers get off not so much a place where justice is, is served. So I wanted it in that courtroom. It's so packed, so so many people can witness. I wanted to see Yacoveta's family there and the families of all the men he's killed and, and reporters. Now, Billy's about to make this speech, and, you know, this is the kind of dramatic potential that, it's, and it's just the tip of the iceberg. He's just so legit. I mean, the guy looks like God. Look at him. You people have been chosen to reveal our existence to the world. You will witness what happens here today, and you will tell of it later. All eyes to the front. See, I think Billy's an untapped resource. I think he can... I think he can do just about anything. He can be the funniest guy in the world and then go all the way to a character like this and, and just be so legit. And now he shows a little bit of tenderness here with this, uh, this young girl who's been wronged by this mafia guy in some way, shape, or form that we don't know about. And bang, the cops are helping him out, helping him get in and eventually help him get out. You will receive us. Would you not ask for your poor? Your here's where they deliver their credo, right here. It is your corrupt we claim. It is your evil that will be sought by us. With every breath, we shall hunt them down. Each day, we will spill their blood till it rains down from the skies. Do not kill. Do not rape. Do not steal. These are principles which every man of every faith can embrace. These are not polite suggestions. These are codes of behavior, and those of you that ignore them will pay the dearest cost. There are varying degrees of evil. We urge you lesser forms of filth, not to push the bounds and cross over into true corruption, into our domain. But if you do, one day you will look behind you and you will see we three. And on that day, you will rip it. And we will send you to whatever God you wish. Yeah, that last line, we will send you to whatever god you wish, you know. It just, uh, I think, to me, that was one of those lines where it shows that, again, you know, as we've showed that these taboos about homosexuals and all these other things that I've trampled on are unimportant, the only thing that's important to these people is justice. Boom. And I like that, the singles on their faces, you know, Nomini Patri, there's Billy and Feely, and there's his son, uh, Sean, and then Spiritus Sancti's Norm, you know. I wanted that Norm's look. Again, I'm using his James Dean-esque quality there. Now this actually, you know, we ended up putting it in at the end here in some fucking Flophouse Hotel, but there's another dream sequence that I couldn't afford to shoot. So, the, you know, the, they woke up from a dream here, and here's Billy putting a button on everything. The question is not how far, 
The question is, do you possess the constitution? The depth of faith to go as far as is needed? After the astonishing and with some final words with him, we go into this uh, final part of the film, which I <laughs> shot for 200 bucks on a news camera type thing, like a beta camera around Los Angeles with just my buddies, you know? These are all my friends in here and uh, some people that we ran into on the street. That's my neighbor or my old neighbor, wonderful woman. That's my other neighbor. That's uh, CB's girlfriend on the left and her friend Marie. And there's my two buddies, Quintana and Ryan Parks. There's Erica again. Hell of a little actress. <laughs> this woman we just ran into, she was awesome. Started getting all down with it. There's uh, our publicist, Al, Tony. They should be in every major city. Every major city. These guys are playing guys. Uh, my college buddy from when I was going to Colorado, there's Bill. There's Skelty. He's one of my best friends right there. Kill them all. Oh, I'm all for it. the motherfuckers. The more people She was great. Everybody. That's exactly what they no, get. No, do not do that, Luquel, because you don't even know. Sign me up. There's Gordo. Right. Davy's there. Who are they to be judge and jury? No, because what if your mom say no? No comment. As my agent. No <laughs> I'm afraid for myself. I'm afraid for my kids. I'm afraid to walk down the street. We had everybody, and we were begging people. We were like, come on down, I'm buying pizza. And if you look in the background, you can like see palm trees and stuff like that. But I wanted to leave it with Michael Scanlon, the mighty, mighty Michael. Um, I wanted to leave it, you know with the split public opinion. Mark Brian Smith, good buddy of mine. He did a good job with that little thing, too. There's the ex-wife, Lisa. There's Marky again. You know, I wanted people to protest it, and I wanted people to, to be on their side, and I wanted people to refuse comment, period. And there's one of my good friends, Mark Marseille. I'm ready to my on, okay? I'm ready to get busy, too. You know, I'm ready to get busy. <laughs> I just want to end it on a little funny thing with Skelty there. So I guess, you know, I want to, uh, I want to say something to all the fans of Boondocks. I don't think you guys really realize how much you, you've done for me just by liking my movie and talking about it to your friends. Um, after that whole Columbine incident and working so hard and getting so screwed, and I guess I just had a moment in my life where I lost faith and, uh, I lost hope. And suddenly getting the information, you know, through the internet or people coming up and talking to me, knowing that you guys are all out there watching it and you saw it and you and you loved it. That's one of the things I'll never be able to for, forget and never be able to thank you enough for because um, now I'm sitting down, keeping my head down, writing and hoping that I get to do another movie, you know, because I'm proud of this because of you and I'm thankful.